Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word i've said to you many times in the past that it can be a slippery slope to try and prove anything from the Bible. Now, I don't think that's my job. But what I have done and will continue to do is present you with the facts and then let you decide. Now, just for clarification, the facts that I'm referring to come from the Bible. So if you don't believe in the Bible, and you won't believe in the Bible for any reason, then there is really no sense in you continuing to listen to this lesson or this series. This is going to be a series. In fact, if you don't believe in the Bible, nor ever will believe in the Bible, there's really no reason for you to listen to any of our teaching. Because for us, that's where we find our facts by and large. And any fact that we may find outside of the Bible, outside of Scripture, outside of God's Word, if that fact does not line up with God's Word, then we reject it. Now let me begin by saying some, something you probably already know. Modern humans don't accept that miracles are possible. Some modern thinking person, for instance, may tell you that Jesus could not have turned water into wine. They'll say it's impossible. Your reaction probably then would be, like any other person who feels that a loved one is being slighted, and then you would try to defend Jesus. And, by the way, let me say, you might find yourself doing that a lot because modern people, even church-going, professing Christians, doubt the scriptural accounts of the miracles, particularly the miracles of Jesus. So if you are prone to defending Jesus' miracles, you will be a busy person. And if that happens to be your tendency, let me help you with a little time management. You see, you really only need to defend one miracle. All the other miracles actually don't mean anything if this one miracle didn't happen. Let's, let's just say that Jesus is reputed to have performed, I don't know, 100 miracles. I don't know the actual number. Let's, let's just use 100 for simplicity's sake. 
if Jesus is said to have performed 100 miracles and you can prove 99 of them, but can't prove this one we are about to discuss, then all of the other miracles are actually meaningless and not worth your time defending. In fact, I can tell you with complete certainty that if Jesus did not perform this one miracle that we will discuss in a moment, then all of the other miracles, 100 or not, were not miracles. They were not miracles at all, but probably just tricks or lies, or at the very best, misinterpretations of natural events. Now, of course, I can hear the collective gasp. Nonetheless, I stand by what I say. In fact, I'll say it again. If Jesus did not perform one miracle in particular, then he did not perform any of the others. All other reported miracles were either complete deceptions or the people reporting them were either liars or fools. Now, of course, I believe most of you are already with me. The one miracle Jesus had to perform for all of the other miracles to be valid was the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, then he was not who he said he was. Because only the person he claimed to be could have done all of those miracles that are attributed to him. He said he was the Son of God, translation, Messiah. And Scripture says that only the Messiah can perform the miracles he was reported to have performed. If he did not come out of that tomb, then he was not the Messiah. If he did not rise from the dead, then he was not the Messiah. If he was not the Messiah then, then the miracles attributed to him didn't happen. Now, some may say, well, now, wait a minute. The Bible tells us that the apostles also performed miracles. Why are they not candidates for Messiahship? Well, two answers. First of all, none of them claimed Messiahship. And number two, any miracle that those disciples and apostles performed, they said they did those miracles in his name. In other words, they always gave credit for their miracles to the power of Jesus. They did not claim any power in themselves. It was by his authority and by his power, they say they did those miracles. And that, by the way, further solidifies Jesus' claim to being the Messiah. So, but let, let's look at this in reverse. All you would really have to do to prove those other miracles is to prove the resurrection. There would be no need to go over the proof 
or the truth or the validity of all of those other miracles once you proved, quote unquote, the resurrection. Once I convince you that he came out of the tomb, then all of those other miracles are just axiomatic, as they say. You cannot prove any of those miracles until you prove the resurrection. So don't even bother starting any defense of a miracle if your opponent does not accept the resurrection. That's where you must start, and that's where this series is going. We're going to talk about, again, in air quotes, the proof of the resurrection. Now, admittedly, this is not going to be an easy task because the first thing you must ask is, where do I begin? Well, you regulars know my answer to that. Scripture. Now, we're going to do this a little differently over this series. We're not going to read text in the way we typically do. We're going to refer to several passages to get ourselves going. And we're doing that in order to lay out the claims as they are presented in the gospel. It is on the basis of the claims that we will do our best to, again, air quotes, prove the resurrection. And then what we'll do is we'll lay out those claims and then we'll present some common criticisms and alternate theories and then we'll answer those criticisms and then we will answer those theories and then we will show you that really there is only one theory and that is that the resurrection is true. Now, by the way, I'm using as a template or a reference document for this lesson the very wonderful classic book, Trial of the Witnesses by Thomas Sherlock. And then there is also some reference that we will go to in a book by Zachary Pierce called The, Mis the Miracles of Jesus Vindicated. As you know, I always like to let you know where my source material comes from. So let's start out by speaking generalities. Now, historians, anthropologists, and archaeologists will tell you that throughout mankind's existence, there have been a number of religions that claim the martyrdom and return of their beloved leader who is then somehow deified upon death. And as a consequence, a large chunk of the criticism that gets hurled at the Judeo-Christian religion. And, and in this particular discussion, it's impossible for us to separate Judaism from Christianity because the origins, the foundation of Christianity lies in Judaism. The Messiah concept itself is Judaic, so we cannot separate ourselves from it. So that's why we have to kind of look at Judeo-Judaism and Christianity as a unified 
system, if you will, especially in this conversation. Now, most of the criticism of the validity of the religion of the Jews and the Christians is that they are seen as simply following a common pattern that's present in other ancient religions. That the claims of, the, of Judaism and Christianity are common claims throughout mankind's religious reported experience. Well, in answer to that, let me say that just because the religions of the world follow a set pattern doesn't mean that what we believe is not true. Isn't there the possibility of a Another reason why there is so much commonality in the religions of the world. Now to consider this point, that there may be a, another possible explanation, we're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning. Now generally speaking, most of science, and I think most intelligent people, will agree that all of mankind came from a single source, one set of parents that started the whole human race. Now, we say that was Adam and Eve, and science says that was Mama Monkey and Papa Monkey, whatever. One set of parents. The Judeo-Christian source book, which is the Bible, makes it clear that this first set of parents was created. Now, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. I'm trying to come up with a at least a possible, what I believe to be the true explanation, but at least to you, maybe a possible explanation as to why there is common elements found in the religions of the world. Now, I've started with the simple fact that the human race most likely had a single, not most likely, science will say most likely, I will say definitely had a single source. And by source, I mean a single parental source. We say it's Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were created with an intelligence from the moment of their creation. And that intelligence, the Bible leads us to believe, was cultivated by God, the one that created them and their intelligence. For instance, we know that God tasked Adam to name all the creatures of the earth. He had to know how to do that. That was an intelligent task. That's something that would take intelligence. Only an intelligent being would be able to differentiate between the different species. God said, name all of the, told Adam to name all of the creatures of the earth. Therefore, Adam must have had an intelligence. Further, whenever God spoke to Adam and Eve, it is apparent that he spoke to them audibly. They had to understand audibly what God was saying. Now, just these couple of examples and, and others that we won't take time to go into tell us that God communicated and interacted and taught our first parents. 
Therefore, it is not a stretch to believe that God told them, those our first parents, about himself, at least as much as they could handle, as much as they needed in order to worship God. And we know that they were to worship God. Genesis tells us that. So God had to give them a knowledge of himself so they knew what they were going to worship. If you're going to praise something, it it presupposes that you know what you're praising. You can't praise something you have no knowledge of. God must have told them in some way or given them in some way a knowledge of himself. Now, we know Adam and Eve had a knowledge, therefore, of God. They praised him and worshiped him. They knew of him. Now, like all good parents, Adam and Eve then shared their knowledge and intelligence of God with their children and grandchildren. They, in turn, shared it with their children and grandchildren, and on and on it goes. The point is, there is most likely a single origin to all of mankind's spiritual or religious, if you want to call it that, knowledge, the knowledge of God. There's a single origin to all of mankind's knowledge of God. It came from somewhere and spread throughout human existence. And so it's not so surprising that there would be similarities among the world's religions. They came from one true source. Now, what mankind then did with that original knowledge is not to be blamed on God. Mankind, in his selfish ways, his sinful ways, and of course the devil, the great imitator, came in and changed so many of the origin original knowledge of God, which now leads to all of this world religion. But there are still similarities strung throughout most of the religions of mankind. So that's reason number one, why there is probably this commonality in religions of the world. That's reason number one. Now there's a second reason that I believe is possible for this surprising string of similarity among ancient religions. Dr. Gene Scott talks about what he called a vestigial remnant of God's mind in all of us. And by that he meant that since mankind was made in God's image, that there exists in all of us a leftover. That's what vestigial means, a leftover or remaining knowledge of God and God's ways. And the, because that remains, it remains even after our physical contact with them has been severed following the expulsion from the garden. That vestigial remnant, that remaining, that leftover knowledge of God's ways is still with us. Even those of us so far removed from the garden experience, certainly it's probably subconscious. It is subconscious, but nonetheless, it is strong enough to have an effect on how we see the world around us. God made us in his image. Therefore, there is still a part of him that exists in us. It's in our DNA, so to speak. It's built in. 
Now stay with me because we're getting somewhere. We're addressing the criticism that Christianity is just another one of the world's major religions that speaks of, for example, a martyred religious founder whose death made a difference in the lives of the believers, and that because of this commonality, Christianity shouldn't be given any higher regard than any other religion. And in fact, the criticism goes, like all other religions, Christianity should be discarded because of this commonality being mere superstition. Superstition that's sort of just been handed down from our ancient past. And because of that, because Christianity is lumped in with all the other religions, then it should be rejected, including this idea that there's this Savior, this commonly referred to Savior, that we can reject that because it's just mere superstition. Every religion comes up with that eventually. That's the criticism. Now, it is, in fact, true, I will concede, that the theme of Savior is prevalent in world religions. But don't you think that they're, especially based on our current discussion, that there may be more than just this idea we should discard it because it's just sort of some archetype in man's psyche? Couldn't it be because there is an unoriginal source or at least a vestigial remnant and then that would explain the commonality? You see, the Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That means our Redeemer, the, the concept of one who would die sacrificially for us, actually goes further back than we do. It says Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. The world was founded and then we were founded. So this idea of a slain sacrificial lamb is older than we are. Seems hard to believe, but Revelation 13.8 makes it clear that God's plan of redemption preceded the creation of mankind. And since we have this, again, we'll use the word vestigial or the phrase vestigial remnant of God's intellect in us, we from our very creation knew that there would be a lamb, a great sacrifice for us. Now, are you following this? I will say it again. It is, at least in my mind, certain that the knowledge of a Savior is in our makeup. I used the word DNA earlier. It is a part of us. The knowledge of a Savior is a part of us. And it's the job of God's Word to articulate that concept, the concept of sacrifice. It's God's Word and God's Spirit that will help us to better understand what that concept of, favor, of Savior is particularly. Yes, there is commonality. There's this common idea of a Savior in all the other world religions, but the problem for all those others is they got the wrong guy. 
Now, how do I know that? Well, I'll tell you, because none of the others say anything like this. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Now, if you want to lump Jesus in with other religious martyrs of the world, tell me which other martyr in human history predicted the details and timing of their martyrdom. Now, I argue and have argued in the past that Jesus was not a martyr. And I say that because not only did he do nothing to prevent his own death, but he also purposely put himself in a situation to facilitate his death. Jesus, he actually had to lend a hand to those that were going to execute him just so they wouldn't screw up the timing. This either makes Jesus, the world's dumbest martyr, or as I contend, not a martyr at all. That his death was a part of the plan. But we're not here to talk about the death of Jesus. We've covered that subject before. Today and in this series, the, our aim, the aim of this discussion is his resurrection. Because, listen, frankly... Jesus' death doesn't show us anything. We all die. People died before Jesus, and they've been dying ever since. Nothing special about the fact that Jesus died. Now, I'm not, believe me, I'm not diminishing the death of Jesus in any way and its impact on our hearts, but it just doesn't do anything for his Messiahship for his claim to be Messiah. In fact, if anything, listen to me, if anything, Jesus' death and how it was accomplished, meaning being executed as a criminal, when you really think about it, would have actually damaged his claim to Messiahship had it all ended there. Who wants to have an executed criminal as their savior. There's more to it than his death is the point I'm trying to make. He rose and it is his resurrection that set him apart. It was his resurrection that displayed for the whole world who he really is. Now we know this because scripture also tells us that. Romans 1.4 and speaking of Jesus, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And this is why we spend so much time on this program talking about the resurrection. Because it is by the resurrection from the dead that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. Now, there are two words that I want to talk about real quick from Romans 1.4, the word declare and the word by. Now, let's start with the word declare. Now, even in English, the word declare speaks volumes. It makes this verse quite clear. The resurrection didn't make 
Jesus the Messiah. It wasn't as if he was created to be the Messiah the moment he rose from the dead. That's not what Romans 1.4 says. Romans 1.4 says the resurrection was the indicator that he was the Messiah. It was the declaration of him being the Son of God, which again means Messiah. Declaration. He was declared to be the Son of God. The original word in the Greek is horizo. And horizo means, with respect to people, something very simple. Horizo means to decree. Now, that's not a word that we use a lot these days, so let's head over to the dictionary for a little clarification on this word decree. I think you'll find this very helpful. Merriam Webster defines decree to mean, quote, to order or decide in a, an official way. And Jesus was declared, decreed, ordered, and decided in an official way to be the Son of God. Now, I have a little background in the legal field. I'm not an attorney, but I have spent enough time looking at the law and sitting in courtrooms. And I can tell you that this sort of things quite regularly happen in the courts. Some official process is followed in order for there to be a judicial or administrative ruling on something. A ruling is the same as a decree. A decree is the same as a declaration. For instance, an instance from court where a decree or a ruling is laid out. Trials are conducted to determine the status of a person. Now, the one status that seems to get determined most often through official means is guilt or innocence in a crime, but there are others such as or like competence or suitability. So, guilt or innocence, competence, suitability. There is some court process that will you will follow in order for this declaration or decree or determination of a person's status. Now, the important thing to remember is that a decree, listen to me, this ruling, this decision, this declaration doesn't make something true. It just serves as an official announcement of the truth. It puts a seal of officiality to make up a word on something. In other words, judges don't make people guilty when they pass sentence. They just make their guilt official by decree. That criminal was always guilty, and the trial or the and the judge or the jury's decision just happens to sort of lay out that guilt for for all to officially know. It is the decision of the court to sort of open up the status of the person to be officially declared guilty or innocent. In the exact same way, the resurrection didn't make Jesus the Son of God. It was just the official decree that he was so. It was the announcement that he was the Son of God. It was the 
laying on top of him the declaration that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. The resurrection showed for all to see what was already true all along, and that's why we study the resurrection. Because it is the resurrection that we can see decrees, declares, rules Jesus as the Messiah. It is by far the most important happening in human history, far more important, as a matter of fact, than even his birth. Now, I know that bothers people when I say that, and I do say it fairly often. The reason why it bothers people is because the celebration of Christmas has become this gigantic tug, this emotional tug on us, and we've somehow placed this inordinate amount of importance on the birth of Jesus. Listen, outside of the first part of a couple of the Gospels and maybe one or two prophetic announcements in the Old Testament, Jesus' birth hardly gets a mention in Scripture. Now, you know why? Because without the resurrection, the birth would have no impact on mankind, none. In fact, without the death and resurrection, the perfect life that Jesus lived, the fulfillment of the law, really would only have helped Jesus. And if all Jesus did was help himself, then he would have made God a liar. Because even before Jesus was born, God declared, Matthew 1, 21, that Mary shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's what God said Jesus was here to do. If Jesus only came to live a perfect life and die and not rise, that statement is a lie. Death without resurrection doesn't help us from our sins. You see, the name Jesus is a transliteration of what God really named him, which is Yeshua. Now, Yeshua is a contraction or a shortening, if you will, of the name Jehovah Ashua. Joshua is the same type of shortening. Same type of contraction of Jehovah Ashua. Jesus, Yeshua, is Jehovah Ashua, which in Hebrew means the Lord that delivers or helps. God sent Jesus to help us, not himself. None of this would have helped us. None of what he went through would have helped us if the cup of Calvary had passed from Jesus as he asked for in Gethsemane. The resurrection was actually Jesus in his role as our high priest taking the sacrifice of his sinless life as an offering to the Father in the heavenly Holy of Holies. And he could not have done that had he not risen. He could not have presented himself as our sacrifice. That's, and the Messiah is the one that's here to help his people. Yeshua was here to help his people. That was his name. 
In order for Jesus, Yeshua, to live up to his name, he had to go beyond the death and straight to the resurrection. The sinless life, the death, and the resurrection cannot be separated and still be effective in covering mankind. Without all three, mankind doesn't get redeemed. Leave one out, mankind doesn't get redeemed. Life, death, and resurrection. You cannot believe in Jesus as your Lord without admitting that he rose from that tomb. If you think you're too smart to believe that Jesus rose bodily from the tomb, then you cannot be a Christian. See, Christianity isn't something you're born into. Jews are born Jews. They're born into some tribe. None of them know which tribe they're from, but they are born into some tribe of Israel. Therefore, they're born Jews. No matter what they do, no matter how they practice, no matter what they say, no matter anything, no matter where they live, they were born a Jew. You are not born a Christian. You can actually be born a Jew and become a Christian. Many do. But the only way anyone can become a Christian is believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose. Because that's what he was here to do. That's why I say, don't even bother being a Christian, or for that matter, a follower of God in any respect, unless you believe in the power and truth of resurrection. Sleep in on Sundays. Go tailgating. Now, what I've been feebly babbling about for the past few minutes was best expressed by Paul in just a few words. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. If he did not rise and take himself and his perfect life to God as a sacrifice for your sins, if none of that happened, if he did not raise, according to Paul, and I happen to agree, then your faith is in vain. Is that clear? All right, let's continue our analysis of Romans 1.4 just a little bit longer. Now, just as a reminder, Romans 1.4 says and declares, speaking of Jesus, to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We just covered the English word declare. Now, let's take a quick look at the word by. The original Greek word is ek, and it has a very simple definition. Ek means origin. It means the jumping off spot. The declaration, the announcement, the proof, if you will, of the Messiahship of, the, of Jesus Christ is the resurrection. Messiah and Christ actually mean the same thing. The declaration, the announcement, the proof of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, is the resurrection, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. If you say to someone that Jesus is the Son of God and you want to prove that to them, 
then you must start with the resurrection. Don't start with the miracles. Don't say, well, he turned water into wine. Oh, he walked on water. Oh, he raised the sick or healed the sick, raised the dead, cured the blind, healed leprosy. Don't use those. Don't even talk about those. Those had, have nothing to do with proof that he was the son of God. Go to the resurrection. I told you earlier, if you want to prove to people that Jesus turned water into wine, then you better talk about the resurrection because he couldn't have done that if he didn't rise. If he wasn't going to rise, if he was not the guy who was going to rise from the dead, he didn't turn water into wine. He didn't heal the sick. He didn't cure blindness. He didn't set the captives free if he didn't rise from the dead. If I can convince you that the resurrection occurred, then you have absolutely no excuse for denying that Jesus is the Messiah, the very Son of God, the one about, the who, about whom the entire Bible was written. And I'll say it one last time before we move on. There can be no gray area here. Either he rose from the grave, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not just talking about, nor is the Bible talking about being a ghost, whatever that is. Jesus made it clear that he was not a ghost when he appeared in that upper room after the crucifixion. He said he was flesh and bone. Ghosts don't have flesh and bone. He was a living body made of flesh and bone. That's the miracle. So I'll say what I was just about to say. Either Jesus rose bodily from that grave and is therefore the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who came to save you, or he did not rise from the grave, and none of it is true. Again, Paul with concise clarity, apparently not a trait I share with Paul, says... 1 Corinthians 15, 17, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Now, since we started this, I'll go all the way. Dr. Gene Scott used to say, If you're going to be a Christian, be one. The idea of partial commitment does not exist. Not as a Christian. Either you're a committed Christian or you're not a Christian. I very often use these famous words of Jesus from Revelation. And yes, Jesus spoke in the book of Revelation. Chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I'm sure you've heard it said that the opposite of love is not hate, but rather indifference. Jesus would prefer that you stood strong for anything rather than nothing. You see, if you have a passion for anything, even if that passion is for evil, then Jesus knows that he can turn that passion around. Once you're passionate about something, you understand that there is importance in things. 
There is importance for standing up to things. Once you're passionate, no matter what your passion is, it's, it's apparent that you value something. All Jesus has to do is replace what you're passionate for. Some of the strongest statements of faith come from those who were once wretched creatures. Have you heard of the man named John Newton? By his own admission, he was an abysmal human being. He was a slave trader. Now, there's hardly any more despicable occupation than one that peddles in human flesh. He was despicable. One night, a terrible storm battered the ship that Mr. Newton happened to belong to as a crew member in the slave trade. During the storm, he and the other crew members understandably became terrified. Well, it was that night during that terrifying storm that John Newton gave his life to Christ. It was that night that John Newton started to change what he was passionate about. Now, among many other things he was known for from that night on was the penning of these famous words. I'm sure you've heard them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The point is, Jesus can do great things with passionate people, but according to his own words, he will have nothing to do with the lukewarm, the passionless, the fence-sitters, we may call them now. You can't be a part-time Christian. You can't be a partial Christian. You cannot be a, "Eh, I'm not so sure, Christian. You can't. If you, as a Christian, don't fully acknowledge the truth of the one central fact of Christianity, the resurrection, if you scoff even only subconsciously, listen, even if you decide just to kind of disregard it, due to your own doubts, and keep going on to church, keep saying you're a Christian. Well, you're not. Paul said, if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. If in your mind this thing is not settled, if if the resurrection, if his rising from the grave, if Christ be not raised in your mind, your faith is mateos. Mateos, that's the original Greek word. Mateos means empty, profitless. If the resurrection did not happen, if it's not real to you, then you are wasting your time. If Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, ye are yet in your sins. J. Vernon McGee interprets this verse this way. He says in his country preacher way, If Christ is not raised, then my friend, you are a lost, hell-doomed sinner, and that's all you can ever be.
Strong statement indeed. Maybe you had better pay a little more attention to our little unfolding series. What do you think? So let's jump in by going over some of the general true facts that we are all aware of. Now, remember, we are doing this. We're laying out the facts so that we can also then talk about the theories and the hypotheses as to what happened with all of these things. And we'll address those in a later lesson. So this last part of the first part of this series, we're just going to talk about some of the facts with a little bit of commentary along the way. So number one, Jesus, after spending about three years preaching, teaching, and healing, begins a phase of his life that will change the world forever. Now, some may say, well, what do you mean by that? Didn't his preaching, teaching, and healing change the world forever? No. Frankly, what Jesus taught, what Jesus preached, and the healing he wasn't the first to do. He wasn't the only to do. Jesus did not come and say anything any different than anyone had said before. He may have said it in a different way. But what he said, someone else had said before. If Jesus had to only come and say things that had already been said, would he really have come? Would he have given up? His place in glory? Do you think that Jesus, who we know he knew what he was going to go through, do you think he only came down here to be a teacher? That wouldn't be a very smart thing to do. Die the death that he died, live the life that he lived. Remember, he didn't have a place to lay down his head. He had to go relying on the goodness of others to eat and sleep. He didn't live like a king while he was here. And believe me, if he only came to be a teacher or a preacher, he would have been far more effective as a teaching, preaching king. He would have reached more people if that's all he was trying to do. That's not what he was here for. He was here to die and rise. Let's start over. Jesus, after spending about three years preaching, teaching, and healing, begins a phase of his life that will change the world forever. On more than one occasion, Jesus proclaims that to his disciples that despite their expectation of an earthly kingdom, he will be arrested, tried, convicted, and executed. He predicts that in three days after his execution, he will rise bodily from whatever grave he is laid in. Fact number two, Jesus gathered his disciples for a Passover celebration. During the celebration, he once again speaks of his death, and this time his tone is such that the inference is that that death is imminent. 
And at this celebration, he also declares that his death isn't the end of his ministry, nor of his purpose, but rather his death would be a sacrificial one and therein would accomplish something wonderful. At the Passover meal, Jesus also speaks of a betrayer that is among them. Fact number three, Jesus then leads his disciples up the Mount of Olives to a place called Gethsemane, where it appears he is in great distress. Fact number four, before long, while up on, that, on the Mount of Olives in that Garden of Gethsemane, a band of men approaches, and some of those men are armed. Among the group is the betrayer Jesus spoke of. We know the betrayer as Judas Iscariot. There's a bit of a scuffle between Jesus' disciples and the band of men, but eventually Jesus diffuses the situation and allows himself to be arrested. Now, we're not going to specifically cover all of these points, but I think it's important that we simply lay out, simply touch on the facts so that we can form a basis for our discussion and also creates an atmosphere and an understanding and a reminder of the chronology. So let's continue. Fact number five, Jesus is arrested and then led away. The Sanhedrin begin to interrogate Jesus. Now, in case you don't know, the Sanhedrin was a sort of judicial council whose function it was to decide on matters of supreme importance to the Jewish community. Now, the Sanhedrin consisted of, as described in Scripture, leading or chief priests, elders, and scribes. Now, during the interrogation, what the Bible calls false witnesses are brought forward. The false witnessing does not go well for the accusers of Jesus, so the high priest Caiaphas personally takes over the interrogation. Caiaphas asks Jesus flat out if he is the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus' answer confirms that he is. Caiaphas then famously tears his clothes as a ritualistic reaction to what he hears. Caiaphas then declares Jesus a blasphemer, and the Sanhedrin then sentences Jesus to death. Now, before we go on, I want to say something to you that you've heard me say many times. You should at least respect the Sanhedrin and their leader, Caiaphas. These men acted. They acted on their belief. They didn't just sit back and say, well, you know, he, he isn't really who he claims to be. He is a bit of a blasphemer, but, you know, he's wise and he's kind. And there's all those pretty words and all that. Let's just give him the respect that we would give any other wise teacher. And just, well, why don't we just ignore his claims? You know, that's what we do today. We have strong opinions against Jesus Christ. His critics have strong opinions of him, but they don't come out with any boldness or courage to say anything about it. 
Listen, you gotta hand it to the Sanhedrin. They had the guts to stand by their opinion and convict someone they did not believe in. Jesus's enemies today don't have that courage. They don't have the boldness of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin said Jesus was a liar. And at least on the surface, they based their opinions on religious grounds. They knew precisely, by the way, who Jesus claimed to be. And they took that claim very seriously, deadly seriously, as a matter of fact. Now, the truth is, of course, at least in part, the Sanhedrin and the other religious leaders were jealous of Jesus' power and influence. But you have to convince yourselves that they could not have possibly believed that he was who he said he was. Listen, that would be foolish. That would be a death sentence. I mean, would you purposely flick the ear of a guy who you firmly believed was the heavyweight champion of the world? Of course not. I mean, you know that, first of all, that flick on the ear isn't going to do anything to that person. And after flicking him on the ear, you were going to be destroyed. I argue that there is really no way that the high priest and the Sanhedrin could have thought that Jesus was really the Son of God. If they did, they would have never messed with him. The point is that they were not lukewarm. They were either hot or cold, depending on how you view the subject. You know, objectively speaking, I respect decision makers. I respect people who take a side. Now, listen, if you don't know or you don't have enough information, don't just take a side to take a side. Just don't go with the crowd. But if you are convinced of something, stand up for it. Fight for it. Be bold and brave enough to stand your ground. These men had a belief that only God could make the claims that Jesus was making. And along with that belief was the belief that Jesus was not God. And because of that belief, they had the guts to have him murdered. To have him executed as a blasphemer. And listen, that took guts. And I mean that. Listen, Jesus was popular. Right up to that point, Jesus was popular. As, as a matter of fact, just a few days before this trial happened, the people of Jerusalem were trying to convince Jesus to become their king. John 12, 12 and 12, 13. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna! Blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. What's your point, John? Listen, if you're going to believe in something, if you're going to claim to be a believer, if you say you're a follower, then be one. 
have as much or more courage than the enemies of Jesus. That's the only way. The things of the Bible are here for our example. Even things that we may consider evil, we can see that those men were convinced, at least notionally, on religious grounds, that Jesus was a blasphemer and they did something about it. They had the courage. They stand as an example for us who do believe Jesus is the Son of God. We should be shamed if we don't stand up for what we believe in. The enemies did. Let's continue with our facts. Number six, despite all the blustering, the Sanhedrin as mere local authorities in a Roman-controlled province really didn't have the authority to put anyone to death. Therefore, Jesus is led to the Roman authority, Pontius Pilate. Pilate questions Jesus. Pilate concludes that Jesus has done nothing wrong. The Sanhedrin become more insistent. Do you remember that movie, A Few Good Men, one of my favorites? During the courtroom scene, one of the attorneys, Joanne Galloway, says to a point of law, I object. The judge overrules the objection. In other words, the judge does not believe in the legality of the objection. Joanne Galloway then says something very similar to what happened here by the Sanhedrin. Joanne Galloway, by the way, played by Demi Moore, says, I strenuously object. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as strenuously objecting in law. Either you object or you don't object. Once the objection is ruled on, that's it. You don't just say, okay, take my objection to a higher plane. Once the judge rules on an objection, that's it. Well, Pilate ruled that Jesus was innocent. The judgment had been handed down, but apparently that wasn't enough for the Sanhedrin. They strenuously object. To mix my metaphors, I say they threw a challenge flag. The religious leaders wanted to challenge the ruling on the field. And you know what? Believe it or not, Pilate actually goes along. He actually grants the strenuous objection, but in a clever way that will allow him, at least in his mind, to rid himself of this prickly matter and then gain a few political points at the same time. We don't have time to go into the details. But Pilate knows that Jesus is from Galilee, the region ruled by Herod, and therefore he declares that this same man, Herod, the same man who decided the fate of John the Baptist, should also hear the case against Jesus. That was a politically motivated move on Pilate's part, throwing a little bone to the local leader. Anyways, Jesus does then appear before Herod. Well, this little interview doesn't seem to take very long. Jesus is asked a few questions by Herod, and Jesus says nothing. A frustrated Herod then sends Jesus back to Pilate. 
That's facts 7, 8, 9, and 10. Number 11, Pilate once again declares Jesus' innocence, but decides then to ask the people what they want. You ready for some more commentary from me? Listen, you can't get away from it. When examining Scripture, it's virtually impossible to casually walk away from some of these things without commentary. Now, all this, although this happened thousands of years ago, we can see so much of Pilate that we can recognize in our own day. This is a classic example of a consummate politician. Now, it's no secret to most of you that I don't like politicians. And now, don't get me wrong, by the way, don't judge my affiliation. I'm neither Republican nor Democrat. I happen to be a conservative Christian, but that isn't necessarily reflected in my political choices. I just thought I'd say that to you. Because listen, I don't trust any politician. And here's an example of, of why. This man, this politician, Pontius Pilate, refuses to do the right thing. Listen, under almost all circumstances, doing the right thing is also the unpopular thing. And the last thing, the last type of thing a politician wants to do is an unpopular thing. Jesus is innocent, and Pilate knows it, and yet he refuses to do anything until he gets an idea of the popular viewpoint of the thing. He won't take a definitive stand until he knows what the people want, almost the opposite of the Sanhedrin. Pilate will not stand up for what he knows is right. Now, before you go wagging your disapproving finger at Pilate, you better look internally. What makes Pilate such a villain is that he turns his back on what he believes to be true. Pilate believed Jesus to be innocent, certainly not worthy of death. Whatever he did, he was convinced that did not merit death. He offered to whip Jesus. He felt like that would maybe perhaps everyone's got a little bit of skeleton in their closet worth, worth whipping for. But he did not believe that Jesus deserved death. And the sin of Pilate is that he did not stand by his beliefs. He allows his beliefs to be influenced by the crowd. Are you listening to me? But Pilate, by the way, like all politicians, sort of gets a pass on this because, frankly, that's the job of a politician. Politicians like Pilate are elected or appointed to keep the peace. Doing the popular thing is forgivable when you're charged with making sure everyone is happy, when you're charged with making sure that people remain peaceful. 
And that's, by the way, why I don't believe a committed Christian should ever become a politician. Because there will be times as a politician, as part of your job, that you must go against your convictions. Politicians must, that's the way free society works. You're not just representing the Christians. You're representing the people. And that's the way this country was set up. Believe it or not, this is a country of freedom of religion, including freedom of no religion, of having no religion. In almost every constituency of every politician, there is at least a handful of people with no religion. And as a politician, you represent people with and without, poli- without religious affiliation, without religion. Atheists, if you will, but they don't have to be an atheist to be without religion. That makes the job of a politician very difficult for a Christian who should always stand up for their beliefs. If you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, then you had better be prepared to stand by your belief and live your life accordingly. Don't be a politician. Don't be a Pontius Pilate. Don't act contrary to what you know to be true in your heart. Once again, I feel like quoting Revelation 3.16. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Let's keep going on with the facts. Number 12. Pilate turns to the crowd to see what the crowd thinks is the right thing to do. And then fact number 12, to their eternal shame, the people gathered outside in the courtyard inexplicably call for Jesus to be executed. Number 13, the people have decided, and Pontius Pilate, quote, washes his hands of the whole matter. In his mind, he's been relieved of any responsibility. I don't agree with him. Pilate could have stopped this. Now, all of this is objective. It was going to happen. But I'm just saying. It was not difficult for God to find willing parties to this. It was not difficult for God to find someone like Pontius Pilate who was not going to stand up for what's right. It's not like God had to pick through a lot of really good people to find one rotten apple. Fact number 14, before long, after the sentence is passed, Jesus is brutalized, he's beaten, he's humiliated, and eventually he is nailed to a cross where he spends the remainder of his life, which doesn't amount to much more than six hours. He dies on the cross. An innocent man, however, declared to be a criminal. Number 15, Joseph of Arimathea, no doubt a heretofore secret follower. Some have even suggested blood relative of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate for the body. 
Fact number 16, Joseph of Arimathea is granted his request and lays the body of Jesus in a known tomb. Most likely one Joseph had constructed for himself. A large stone is then placed over the entrance to the tomb once Jesus' body is placed there. Number 17. These numbers really don't mean anything. I'm just trying to keep things organized. Nonetheless, number 17, some of the religious leaders know that Jesus claimed he would leave the tomb after the third day. They, of course, didn't believe him, but they feared that the disciples would somehow try to commit a fraud by stealing the body in that time frame. So they petition and are granted permission to post a small band of Roman guards to stand watch over the tomb until the third day had come and gone. The guards were there to prevent any trickery. Number 18, all of this is done before the Sabbath, the rules of which restrict the timing of some of the traditional rituals for the preparation of a dead body for burial. Fact number 19, on the third day following Jesus' crucifixion, some of the women in the band of followers of Jesus traveled to the known tomb to perform the prescribed rituals on his body. Fact number 20, they arrive at the tomb. The first thing that they noticed is that the stone is no longer at the entrance to the cave that they know holds Jesus' body. Now, from here on in is where all the controversy really begins as far as the world is concerned. You see, up to this point, the facts that we've discussed the ones that we've been sharing are of a everyday nature, if you will. We haven't shared any supernatural or unbelievable facts so far. In other words, we haven't talked about anything objectionable, anything that we perhaps would not belong to the natural world. So the world is the, the world's willing to give us these 20 facts. The world, in fact, wants to stay right there. Everything you said, okay, we'll, we'll take it. We'll take everything that you said. The world would gladly pat us on the head and give us a wink if we would just stay at number 20. The world is comfortable with this 20. Hey, we'll give you those 20 would be something we'd hear. Hey, we'll give you those. But we foolish, committed, believing Christians insist there's more. And move on to number 21. So the women, upon approaching, now Mark's gospel says, as they entered the tomb, the other three gospels don't say that. The women approach the tomb and right away they encounter a person who tells them that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, that he has risen and that he will present himself physically to them as he had promised he would. Now, here's where we leave the world behind. Number 22. The rest of the disciples are informed of the empty tomb. Now, it's unlikely, by the way, at this point, that the members of Jesus' now little band of followers have actually accepted the fact that Jesus has risen. It's likely that those disciples don't believe that at this point. 
until fact number 23. Jesus begins appearing physically to some of his followers, to many of his followers, as a matter of fact. Now, we'll get into a few more details on those appearances in just a moment, and we a lot of what we're going to talk about next time will be focused on these appearances. But let me just in, interrupt our flow ever so briefly. There is this false impression, especially among some of the more ultra conservative Christians, that faith in the things of God must be blind faith, so-called, meaning faith that you just don't test with logic. You don't, you don't put your faith to the test. God never intended that. Listen, God knows that blind faith can't be sustained, especially in a world full of enemies. Blind faith would have never carried the church this far. The world has hated Christ and us, his followers, from the very beginning, and we've had to endure unimaginable persecution even to the very day, to this very day. My friends, God is too smart to insist that we believe blindly. God gave us an intelligence for a reason. God made us with brains so that we could weigh the facts. And he facilitates that for us. He submits that to us. That stone, that rolled away stone, is an example. That stone, rolled away by God himself, wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. Wasn't necessary for that. Jesus didn't need an open door to rise. Don't ask me how. But that's a fact. That's one of the facts. When Jesus appeared to the apostles and disciples in the upper room after the crucifixion, the Bible tells us he went through an unlocked door. I mean, excuse me, he went through a locked door. Jesus went through a locked door. For some reason, the body that Jesus was in was not restricted in the ways that we are. Therefore, that stone did not, need it, did not need to be rolled away for Jesus to go out of the tomb. Doors are not important to the type of resurrected body that Jesus had, which we will eventually have. Well, then why was the stone rolled away? That stone was rolled away to let the shaken faithful in. Listen, God knew that the faith of those that saw Jesus murdered was shaken. Those that had heard Jesus declare that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the coming King, 
all of those things, their faith must have been shaken as they watched Jesus die. And so what does God do? He rolled away the stone. God could have said, well, just believe because I told you. He knows that wouldn't have held anyone. That would have held no one's attention. Listen, if God intended us to believe blindly, that stone would not have been removed from its original position because it wouldn't have been necessary to move it. That stone was not displaced to let Jesus out. It was moved away to let the followers in. You want that again? That stone at the entrance of that cave could not keep Jesus in there, so moving it for him would not have been necessary. How do I know that? I, again, I refer to the appearance to the apostles in the upper room. Jesus went through a closed door. That stone at the entrance of the tomb was not real. I know I'm repeating myself. I want you to understand this. You are never expected to believe blindly. There's no such thing as taking a leap in the dark. God doesn't expect that out of you. That's why I get a little irritated when people call me a Christian apologist in a negative way. There are conservative Christians that don't believe that we need to present any, quote, evidence, that we just, we just tell people and they must believe. We just read out of the Bible and then they'll just believe. Believe it or not, there, there are conservative Christians that don't believe that we should stand up and defend the faith. I don't understand that. God doesn't expect you and I to just believe. And the stone that was rolled away from the tomb tells me that. It was rolled away for us. God blessed us with the view of the open tomb because he knows that we would need to keep the sight of the empty tomb in our minds when the world and all of its doubters start attacking. And what about that angelic messenger, the one that announced to those women that Jesus had arisen? If God had expected us to just believe, that angel would not have been present. Why else would that messenger from heaven, as he's called in Matthew 28 to be there? What's the point of having a messenger that has no message. Why have a message with no messenger? If there was no message, don't send a messenger. God, it, God does not expect you to believe blindly. That angel was there to pass on a message that was sure to strengthen the faith of those frightened, confused servants of Christ. They didn't know what was going on. And God knew it, and he helped them. Now, it probably didn't sink in right away, but I'm certain 
that through all the horrific experiences that that first band of followers went through, and believe me, they went through far worse than you and I ever will. I'm certain that all the horrific experiences that that first group of followers went through for the rest of their lives, the memory of that messenger from heaven was one of those things that helped to carry them through. God doesn't want you to think that you have to just believe. That's why the stone was moved. That's why the angel gave that message. And that's why Jesus appeared physically to his friends and followers right after his resurrection. All right, more facts. After his resurrection, the first appearance of Jesus was to Mary Magdalene. Next, Jesus appeared to another Mary, the Mary of the the mother of Mary, the mother of James, and who the authorized version calls Joseph. Other old manuscripts have this man's name as Joseph. Jesus appeared to James and Joseph's mother Mary. There are a lot of Marys in the Bible. A lot, a lot of names in the Bible, by the way. Next fact: Jesus then appears to Peter. Then there's the very famous encounter on the road to Emmaus. Then Jesus appeared to the disciples as they were huddled behind the closed doors, probably in the upper room that the Passover had been celebrated a few nights before. We've already talked about that appearance. That was when Thomas was not present. Then eight days later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples, but this time Thomas is present. As you remember, this is when Jesus submitted to Thomas's test. Again, showing that God expects that we are going to need to test our knowledge. It's just human. God is not against doubt. God wants to help you with your doubt. Now you must be thinking, why are we going through all of this? Well, because I want you to know that Jesus' appearances would actually lay the foundation of faith that was necessary to carry the gospel throughout the earth. When John in his gospel said, quote, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, he had to be speaking of the resurrected Jesus because that's when his glory as of the only begotten of the Father was most evident. John, in that first part of his gospel, was talking about the glory of the Son of God. Well, Jesus' glory wasn't as apparent as it was when he was resurrected. Because remember, we covered this. It was the resurrection that declared, displayed, decreed that he was the Son of God. So when John wrote about beholding of Jesus' glory, at least it's my opinion, that he was reminiscing about one of these times where Jesus appeared to him and the others after the resurrection. That statement 
by John of witnessing the glory of Jesus was a very crucial statement. It was very crucial to the spreading of the gospel. John was talking to Greeks and telling them about the Logos, and that would have not had the same impact if John had not claimed to be a witness. If he was just telling them about something everyone else had been telling them about for hundreds of years, that would not have been as impactful if he'd have said, well, I'm telling you these things you've heard about all these hundreds of years, but not only am I telling you about it, I'm telling you I saw it. It's a big deal. The appearance of Jesus to the apostles and disciples after the resurrection cannot be underestimated in its importance. It's not just an addendum to the end of the Gospels and the beginning of the book of Acts. It isn't just a, oh, by the way, a gee whiz, little bit of information, we even saw them later. This was a crucial point. This was as important to the spreading of the Gospel as anything. Where am I? More facts. After appearing to all the disciples, including Thomas, Jesus appeared to the disciples, not all of them at the same time this time, at the Sea of Galilee. This is that incredibly tender and famous story of Jesus making breakfast for them and speaking directly to Peter. You know that story. This was the post-resurrection Jesus. Next fact. After that, Jesus appeared to, the, to 11 of the disciples on an unnamed mountain in Galilee. Then the last occasion of his appearances actually referred to in the Gospels is when Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. That's recorded in the Gospels. Now, in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to his brother James, to Jesus' brother James. Then there's the famous story of Jesus appearing post-crucifixion to Saul of Tarsus, who we all remember becomes the famous Paul the Apostle. That is also found in Scripture. That's also an important appearance. And then the final fact we'll speak of in this part of the series is the fact of our Lord's ascension, which was witnessed by a number of his followers. Now, all of these are going to become important to you starting next week. All we're going to talk, well, not all. The appearances we will talk about, not all of the effect, not all of the facts will we be talking about, but we are going to talk about the appearance, the appearances because they're very important. They're very important to the critic, they're very important to the believer. That's why we will go over them. So, what we discussed today are the majority of the facts that surround the resurrection. And if you're not impressed by the number of the facts of the resurrection, You've got to work on this. 
That's a lot of facts. There are a lot of facts associated with the resurrection. If you've never been told from the pulpit how important the resurrection is almost every time you go to church, well, here you go. This, the very sheer volume of the things to talk about should tell you how important it is. These facts are critical. They're critical to your beliefs. They're critical to Christianity. Next week, we're going to address some common attempts to debunk these facts. These, these facts exist in the gospel. There are certain criticisms against these facts. Next week, we're going to talk about those. So remember, this is an important lesson. You may want to play this podcast more than once. I know it's very long. I'm sorry about that. There's no way around that. You've, you've got to see that these things are extremely important. Make sure that you're familiar with these facts. Make sure you pay close attention to what we discussed in this lesson, because next lesson, we're going to pick up right there. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.